We do serve a great God, and I am so grateful that he provided us a great word. He provided us his holy word, and so I'm excited to open up God's word and share with you um, from uh, 1 Peter chapter four. If you could open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter four. My name is Robbie, I'm one of the pastors here, and I consider it a great privilege to spend time preaching from the word today, and uh, we have been spending time over this summer through our sermon series of Stand Firm in 1 Peter. And today we start a new and final section of this letter, and what's so fascinating about this is that Peter overlays various concepts, words, and ideas throughout the entire book. So by the time we get to the end, he has layers and layers of meaning packed behind it, okay? And one of those terms in particular that we're going to look at today is the term suffering. Now remember, Peter is writing to a very broad audience, okay? He's writing to nearly over 10 different church plants scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey. And as he's writing to this broad audience, he seems to be speaking specifically about suffering for the name of Jesus. Not generally all types of suffering, but specifically suffering for the name of Jesus. Uh, Today we're going to talk about what it means to rejoice in suffering for that name. Before we begin, I uh, wanted to ask, have you ever thought as to why our Father has chosen to allow his children to suffer for his name, in the name of Jesus. Uh, I'm not, I don't wanna be afraid to ask those hard questions and I want us to, to think about that today as we work through this text and as we see three reasons to rejoice in suffering and three things to do in light of those reasons. You guys there, First Peter chapter four? Awesome, we're gonna start in verse 12. It says, beloved, Uh, Actually, let me pause for a second. I'm not gonna start, stop at each word, so don't be worried. We're gonna get through this, but um, beloved is a very affectionate term that Peter is using here, okay? Uh, It would be similar to me saying cherished friends or loved ones, okay? So he's, this is the tone of this section as we begin, all right? So let's, let's remember that as we read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because a spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone does suffer, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, there's a lot packed in just to a few verses here, right? There's encouragement, there are cautions, there are even commands, but specifically I want us to focus on, according to this text, how there are three reasons we should be rejoicing and suffering. And the first reason is that suffering has a purpose. 
Suffering has a purpose. I know that suffering has a purpose because according to the text, it's not a surprise. Take a look down at verse 12. It says, cherished friends, do not be surprised. Okay, there it is, there's the command. But surprised at what? At the fiery trials when, not if they come upon us, but when they come upon us to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, we are told, even commanded, to not be surprised, okay? Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to plan a uh, surprise birthday party and you command those who are not supposed to say anything about the surprise birthday party who are invited and unfortunately one of your guests happens to uh, spill, spill the beans. Well, let me spill the beans for you according to uh, Peter. He says that the world will be surprised when we as Christians do not join them in activities that contradicts Christ, but we should not be surprised when we receive suffering as we remain faithful to Christ. See, back in verse four, the same word is used. Peter says, they are surprised when you, Christian, do not join them. And in sinful activity, but Peter says, do not be surprised when people persecute us because we associate with Jesus. See, no matter where you live, no matter what your job is, uh, or where you go to school, If you are a Christian, you should expect suffering in one way or another. We should not be surprised when it comes up um, as we see certain trends, even within our own culture here in America. We should not be surprised. Jesus predicted that suffering would happen if we follow him. Uh, You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter five, verse 11 through 12, Jesus says, blessed are you or happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on the account of Jesus. Jesus then tells us what to do. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it's not a unique thing to suffer on account of believing in God and following Jesus. The prophets in the Old Testament are a great example of that, and then the apostles are a great example of that as well. See, a part of the cost to following Jesus is ultimately blessing through suffering. See, a part of the cost of following Jesus is blessing through sufferings. That is not an easy ask. Jesus, in a way, is saying, you wanna come follow me? All right, let's go suffer. That's the ass that he's, he's saying here in, in Matthew. This is one of the costs to following Jesus, amongst other really difficult costs to following Jesus. Uh, one of those being Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to put others first before our own desires, and other life-altering lifestyles that only come as a result of what happens supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian does not mean our life will be any easier. As Christians, we know that any suffering that happens in the name of Jesus is not a surprise, but it ultimately has a purpose. So what's the purpose? Well, I believe according to this text, suffering has a purpose because it is refining us. Now why I say that is because um, Peter seems to be grabbing this concept of fire being, re- being used as a refining tool from Proverbs chapter 27. Um, 
That, that's at least what the commentaries tell me, and I totally believe them, and I checked it out, and I see that connection, but I think a clearer connection is actually just a few pages back in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you could hold your place here in 1 Peter 4, flip back to chapter 1, and look at cha- uh, verse 6 through 7. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, so all kinds of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is using an image here. Faith is tested through trials similar to fire testing gold. However, these trials seem to be more precious than gold because they are producing praise for Jesus. See, we will experience temporary sufferings which tests our faith but refines us into something more precious and glorifying which brings praise and glory to Jesus when he returns. So let's flip back to chapter four and see how Peter overlays a concept and words with a similar idea here. In verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Okay, same word. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, same idea from chapter one. Almost an exact overlay of these words and ideas. And I think fiery is an interesting illustrator as well. Um, he could have chosen any other word, but he chose fiery trials. He's, earlier he said various trials, but this specifically fiery. And fiery seems to uh, either consume or refine things, right? Um, this ring is an example of fire refining it, right? It was put to the test by taking chunks of gold and heating up and molding those chunks of gold into what is now a, a symbol. Right? And the same is true here from this passage that the type of testing or refining that we're talking about has a deeper significance that we endure. So those who suffer for the name of Jesus are being refined for an everlasting significance which ultimately showcases God. So rejoice because suffering for the name of Jesus is, has a purpose. It does have a purpose for our lives. If I could be honest, uh, I often uh, struggle with remembering that suffering has a greater purpose than my happiness. Um, And uh, I'm grateful for many of you who do this very well. You suffer with joy and you rejoice in how God is refining you and working within you. Uh, Grateful for your example and Uh, We all can learn from you as well amidst that. So let's look at the second reason why we can rejoice. Number two, suffering is an opportunity to glorify God. Okay, suffering is an opportunity to glorify God. One of the key times we can glorify God is in the future. If you would um, look at verse 13, and I want to know ESV, it's, it's important. You can, you can miss an important point from this in the ESV. So let's look at it. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now in the Greek, there is this uh, so that or in order that. It's an it's a important clause statement that kind of continues the thought. 
It says, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we're supposed to rejoice now in order that there will be a future rejoicing when the glory of Jesus is revealed upon his return. Again, reminder, suffering is not haphazard, right? Uh, but there is a future reality. And I, and I fully admit, even as a pastor and a longtime follower of Jesus, that I, I sometimes struggle with this, remembering this truth, um, and even trying to reconcile it. How, how does suffering, how, how does the way that we respond now maximize glory for Jesus in the future? But here is how I would explain it. Uh, how we respond now in faith is an indication of what we believe about the future. How we respond now in faith is an indication of what we believe about the future. Uh, a silly example for me is we've been trying to teach our daughter about patience, okay? Um, every time we get into the car and put her in her car seat, because she's only two years old, um, she wants to listen to Moana every time. Like, we, we put her in and Moana? So, well, hold on, hold on, daddy and mommy need to get in and we need to get settled and uh, just wait a minute and usually it results in some tears potentially and so we're trying to teach her about patience. Um, now, I know all the words to Moana soundtrack and I'm not gonna sing it right now for you. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, okay. Um, but we are trying to teach Eden how to delight in being patient. Okay, not an easy task for a nearly two-year-old, right? So we do what every good parent does. We take really big concepts and break it down into very smaller yet still very big concepts, okay? And so we are trying to teach her that whenever we say be patient, we mean to wait and trust. So we ask Eden, Eden, wait and trust. Wait and trust that daddy and mommy will do what we say we will do. We will turn on Moana for you, okay? Cherish friends, how we respond now in faith is an indication on if we truly trust God with the future. We have to wait and trust that what he says he will do will come true. We have to wait and trust knowing that he will return and how we respond now is an indication on if we truly believe he will carry out what he has promised. Friends, Jesus, he is coming back and he will make all things new. Every single wrong will be made right. If you are rejoicing now in suffering, then you are living with the end or the future in mind. This brings glory to God because we are placing our faith in Jesus, banking everything on him, believing that he will do what he says he will do as we wait and trust. That is what faith is. Faith in Jesus is knowing believing and living out our faith-filled hope. Not partially, but all in. We can rejoice in suffering because it's an opportunity to glorify God in the future. But it doesn't stop there. Suffering is also an opportunity to glorify God today. Uh, take a look at verse 16 to see it. Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, let her, not be ashamed, but let them glorify God in that name. That is a present action. That is a present action that we can participate even today. 
This is why at the beginning I said Peter is writing about a specific type of suffering, and not just any type of suffering, but specifically suffering for the name of Jesus. If you have been claimed by Jesus, then Peter says, don't be ashamed. Now listen, I know it's, it's difficult walking into your schools, into your neighborhoods, into your homes, workplaces, even the grocery store, wherever you might be, wherever you're carrying out your everyday life, and identify as a Christ follower. And I know that there's risk, I know that there's fear, that maybe some of us even try to avoid it entirely, bringing it up in the conversation. But, cherished friends, it's an opportunity to glorify God right now as we share about Christ in our life. One of the ways that has helped me glorify God today is to to look outside of my context, to remember that there's a bigger picture happening beyond me. Um, I've had the privilege of visiting many missionaries and church planters around the world of of nearly 40 different countries, and as I visited them, we just spend time learning about, I learn about what life looks like for them as they minister in that setting, or we pray together and just have some mutual encouragement together. And one brother in Christ with his wife and two kids, they are currently ministering to uh, Shiite and Sunni Muslims in a country where Hezbollah is the dominant party. And uh, as I visited them, we navigated secretly through those streets because Christianity is considered illegal there. And um, and it was definitely a war-torn country. And this missionary introduced me to one man whom he's been discipling. It has taken years of faithfulness to see this one person come to know Jesus. And uh, we might look at that and ask, well, is that worth it? Is that, that, is that significant ministry impact to sacrifice so much and see only one person come to Jesus? What we might consider as a temporary sacrifice, God considers as an eternal value. And he would say, yes, it is. That man's soul in the Middle East is no more valuable than the soul of your neighbor or your friend or your children or uh, your enemy even. What is happening in the Middle East is not any more significant than what opportunities you and I have today. I don't know what um, my life expectancy is, but let's just say I have 40 more years no idea, just, just a random guess. Um, the question that I wrestle with is, would I be willing to exchange 40 more years for the eternal salvation of one? And that is what I think is okay to ask our own selves, right? Are we willing to set aside the treasures of this earth for an eternal glory for one soul to follow Christ? I'm not saying that we should up and move to the Middle East or East Asia, although that is definitely uh, a passion of some of yours potentially, and if the Lord is stirring within you to do that, you can do life over there just like you do over here, business as missions or medical missions or whatever it might be to serve overseas. Um, But I'm also speaking to those who feel called here and those who are called here. You and I can glorify God today 
and not being ashamed of being a Christian and telling others in our lives about Christ in our everyday life. And this will likely result in suffering. Do we love Jesus to the point of prison, abandonment, being ostracized, forgotten, looked over, embarrassed, beaten, or even put to death? For love, Jesus went to such an extent on our behalf. And he beckons us to follow him in like manner, to deny ourselves, take up his cross, and follow him. We have that opportunity in our everyday lives and cherished friends, I want to encourage us. As a reminder, Jesus did not call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. And a part of faithfulness in our job description is suffering for his name. Not for our own names, but for his. So let's not be ashamed, but rejoice as we get to glorify God, even amidst what seems like hardship. It is only temporary. Ask yourself today, what hinders me from glorifying God today? Now you might hear that encouragement and be really uh, nervous or terrified right now. Um, and um, potentially similar feeling to what I get with watching somebody climb a mountain with no ropes. Why would you ever do that? I don't know why that's a thing. Um, but um, I want to comfort you, okay, with just, at, at, just coming off of that to remind us that suffering ultimately is a reminder that God is with us, okay? Suffering is a reminder that God is with us. Look at verse 14, it says, if you are insulted for your own preferences, lack of discernment, or your own tarnished name, sorry, wrong interpretation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of God resting on someone. That's it's a rather interesting image. Um, see, that phrase is actually not the first time we've seen that in the Bible. Peter is alluding to an old, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah where Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah. Would, would, he would come as a descendant of Jesse, who is the father of King David. And when he comes, this Messiah will receive the spirit of God. The spirit of God will rest upon him. So when Jesus comes on the scene, before he begins his earthly ministry, the spirit of God descends upon him in a gracefully dove-like fashion and rests upon him to confirm that this is the Messiah. This is your awaited king, the one you've been waiting for, the one who is here to rescue you. This is our king. And um, as we rest remembering that, the Holy Spirit who rested upon our king also rests upon us, those who have submitted their lives to Jesus. We are now covered by the righteousness of Jesus, and the Spirit of God rests upon us like a coat would rest upon our shoulders. See, suffering is a reminder that God is with us, and when suffering comes up, it, 
it doesn't mean that God is absent from his people. It actually means exactly the opposite, that God is present with his people, refining and purifying his people for maximum glory. Usually what hinders me most from taking that risk of suffering for the name of Jesus is typically my own fear. See, by, stand, by the standards of the world, I have all the right tools, right? I have an education, I, have, uh, I went to seminary for this stuff, uh, learning God's word, yet even still with that, I still get afraid at times. And I'm imagining that some of you as well. It's just a guess, I'm not, I'm not assuming that upon you. Um, but what I'm usually focused on in those moments m- more is I'm focused less on the gospel and I'm focused more on myself. I'm counting on myself to have it all together, to say all the right words, to get it in one shot, or to have the right answers to the right questions. And as a result of that, I'm not fully embracing what the gospel is, remembering what the gospel is. See, the gospel is not about how awesome I am or how awesome you are, it's about how awesome God is. And Peter understands this same exact fear. I mean, it is branded within history that he was afraid, right? Um, He denied Jesus not one time, not two times, but three times in a very short window as well. And a time to be bold, he crumbled under pressure and fear. Peter is lovingly reminding us that God is not far off, even in moments like that. He is up close and personal, resting on you and I. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which has, was promised to us by Jesus, is now personally present with his people, even when we endure suffering. And the suffering, the insults, they're simply a sign that he is present. So let's rejoice when those moments come because it's a reminder, yes, that's where the Spirit is. So what can we do in light of these three reasons? Let's look at three things to do, and um, I think the first is pretty clear. Peter has been telling us all along. The first is rejoice. Rejoice with a deep spiritual joy. Because ultimately, union with Jesus goes beyond being united with him in his death and resurrection, like what we learn about in Romans chapter 6. Um, those are wonderful things and I am eternally grateful that death has lost its sting on me and that I get to live with the Lord forever. But entering into a relationship with God is not just a get out of hell and get into heaven card. It is a union with Jesus and a new whole pattern of life transformation, a new way of living in unity with him. And in light of Jesus' suffering and being united with him, we can now look at suffering as not just a byproduct of a fallen world, but a purposed plan and a chance to enter into a lifestyle of following Jesus. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it's, it is a call to enter into a new way of life. Now, as a reminder, I don't think what Peter has in store here or what he's thinking of is a naive rejoicing or a rejoicing that pretends like it's not even happening. Like, I'm just gonna ignore any suffering that's happening whatsoever. Um, nor is he implying that we should uh, egg it on for others to condemn us, but rejoice by walking in confidence and having a deep spiritual delight 
that we are a child of God. And as children of God, we get the privilege and opportunity to mirror Jesus. We get to be his renewed image bearers and reflect him into the world. If this seems like an impossibility for you, or if you feel very uncomfortable with this idea of rejoicing amidst suffering, I would encourage you to pray and ask. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God to do a miraculous work in your heart so that we can be a rejoicing people as we stand firm amidst suffering. Verse 19 tells us what else we should do. It says, uh, if you could take a look down at verse 19, it says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The second thing we must do is trust. Trust our faithful creator. I think one of the easiest ways to trust God more is by remembering him as the creator. It's interesting because Peter could have chosen any other word. He could have chosen father, he could have chosen friend or Lord, but he chose faithful creator. And for me, it's, it created pause as I was reflecting on that because just thinking, why, why would he do that? And again, I think why Peter is doing that is to get us to see a bigger view of God and remember um, him as the creator. I think of Job as someone who struggled to see God's purposes amidst his suffering. And uh, he wasn't even given insight as to why he was suffering, right? But by the end of the book, God takes some time for uh, Job and tells Job to gird up his loins and uh, reminds him that uh, he created everything. God reminds Job that he determined how high the mountain should rise and uh, the precise location of every lightning bolt. He determined where the ocean stops. God reminds him that he determines the sky and its expanse. He created the magnificent animals and the small animals and even says that he knows when the mountain goats give birth. Not even kidding, not even kidding, okay? That's what our God knows. He knows it all. Check it out sometime, Job 38 through 40. It's, it's a good reminder uh, of how amazing our God is. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he says that God knows everything, even when the sparrow falls and the number of hairs that are on our head. Nothing is insignificant to God. And as the creator, God knows every detail. He knows when someone is mocking you, when you are ridiculed, looked over, or harmed. None of it goes unnoticed. So our response should be to trust. If you're here today and you have not placed your ultimate trust in God for eternal salvation through Jesus, Peter has a a caution for you here in verses 17 through 18. Uh, It is a call to obey the good news of Jesus and not to continue in disobedience to the gospel of the good news of God. Dear friend, uh, God is perfectly just, holy, and good. And in his goodness and in his love, he chose to send his son, Jesus, 
to die on our behalf. He lived a life that you and I could never live, and he died a death that we should have died for one purpose, that we might be restored to eternal glory with him and give him maximum glory for eternity. Jesus' sacrifice is an opportunity to trust him, a reminder that we can trust our God who created you and I. Today is a great day to take that step, to put that stake in the ground and commit your trust in him if you have not done so yet. The last item in this passage from Peter is the call to do good. Verse 19 finishes. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Personally, I think this last application is the most difficult. Not that I got the other ones all covered, but it's just, this one is very difficult, right? Because you have to really wrestle um, in action, not just in your mind, but in action, um, how we are responding to those who are doing us wrong, right? When they're doing us wrong, we're called here to still do good, right? Or perhaps you're even asking the question, um, what is the greatest good that I could do for somebody? I have all these awesome options, but what's the best one to, to choose? Well, Peter's charge here is that we suffer for being godly and doing good, not for doing wrong. So it's, it's, it assumes that we stop doing what is bad, right, and point to what is ultimately good. And I think as Christians, we should care ultimately about all types of suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And so the greatest good that we can do is point people to the goodness of God found in Jesus. You and I are not saved by Christ because of our brilliance or because of we are good or because of the fact that we are amazing. Jesus saved us, God saved us through Christ because God is amazing and God is good. And so we get to tell people about what God has done. And so one of the greatest good that you can do is simply tell your story about how good God is and to point to him making him the hero of the story and not ourselves. See, our good works, apart from Jesus, are like filthy rags. If you are covered by his righteousness, any good work is simply an extension of him into the world. We are image bearers who now, because of Jesus, are restored and awaiting his final renewal. So, Let's be a people who stand firm as we go out into the world. That as we go out, we do good works through word and deed, but that these are ultimately mirroring the greatest good and pointing not to ourselves and saying, look how good Radiant is or look how good we are as Christians or how good I am. No, it's, it's to say, look at how good God is. And because God is good, I want to mirror him. I want to be like my Savior. What Jesus accomplished on the cross ultimately allows us to live vulnerably, to love in kindness and to care for those who hurt us. We can endure suffering in kindness because Jesus endured for us on the cross. This next week, pray over these three things. 
spend some time praying and asking God how you might be able to grow in one of these three items or how you might be able to um, try one of these three items this week. As we rejoice, trust, and do good, let's do these things for the good of the nations, for the good of our families, for the good of our places of work, for the good of the nations. Ultimately, for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today and the opportunity to look at your word. Thank you for the opportunity to delight in the fact that uh, we are not good apart from you. Lord, I pray that as we seek to point others to you, that we delight in a relationship with you, knowing and remembering that suffering will come. And I ask, Lord, that we be a people who stand firm, who do not grow weary or afraid, but that we be a people who remember that you are with us, that you are not far off, that you, in fact, are very present. Father, I ask that as we be a people who endure suffering for your glory, that we remember that life that you've granted us is not for us and not for our comfort, but for faithfulness to you. And I ask that there might be some radical actions this next week of us being a people who take that step of faithfulness and as we step into that, that we trust knowing that we are not alone and that all of this is ultimately for your glory. Lord, if there's somebody here who does not know you, I pray that they would uh, commit, commit their life to you today. Uh, That they connect or talk with someone before they leave and uh, that they place their ultimate trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for a day of rejoicing, and may you be magnified, Lord Jesus, as you've conquered it all on our behalf. In your name, amen.